bush and he would speak at these different villages. And when they would gather for worship on Sunday, they got up and danced. I, I'm not going to do it, but it was interesting. <laughs> but then I went to the other extreme and we went to Russia. And there everything was so serious. And when, even when you would take a picture with a Russian believer, they would never smile. And the reason for that is that they wanted the believers in America to know that they were serious about their faith. And so they rarely smiled. So we had these stark contrasts of celebration and completely subdued. So in my heart, I'm singing hallelujah, but I'm singing hallelujah <laughs> on the screen. <clears throat> yeah. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We'll read verses 11 through 15 this morning. He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. I know everything that God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there is nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear Him. That which is has been already and that which will be has already been for God seeks what has passed by. I wanted to really sort of button up chapter 3 before we get into chapter 4. I really had intentions on going there this morning, but I'm not going to do that. I, I, for my own soul, I needed to go back and just sort of pull some things together and, and refine my understanding of chapter 3 as Solomon takes us on this journey, as he refers to himself as Koheleth. But it's interesting because when you look at the progression that he takes, in chapter 1 we had this sort of cyclical existence. We look at nature and everything's going in its cycles and man comes and goes and all of that and is sort of monotonous and burdensome and there never seems to be anything new under the sun. And then all of a sudden he starts to make this shift and we see this ebb and flow that comes but it carries us in a very different way than when he talked about the cycles in chapter 1. Here we say we move from one day to the next, from one season to the next, and we move from one to the other as God is directing and controlling everything, but that is the beautiful thing. He enables us to see that there is perpetual change and that it's not something that is unsettling, it's not something that's tyrannical, but it's something that is unfolding and there is a pattern to it. It is God-given and it is God-directed. As Kidner states, he says, the trouble for us is that not that life refuses to keep still, but that we see only a fraction of its movement and of its subtle, intricate design. We see some elements of God working in our life, and we need to hang on to those in our memory. Build monuments in your hearts and minds of things that God does in your life so you can remind yourself when it seems like everything is out of control to remind yourself of those moments when you saw God's hand clearly in your life, where you see that He is in control. It's sort of like Psalm 93. It's one of my favorite psalms, and it talks about the surging waves as they rise higher and higher and become louder and louder. But in that psalm, it reflects on the fact that God has this effortless sovereignty over everything. When everything seems to be raging in our life, He's got it under control. We're trying to keep all the plates spinning, yet He has no problem keeping the cosmos moving, yes? And so we need to remind ourselves of these things. 
Instead of the changelessness, there is something better here than, he says this is dynamic, it is a divine purpose, it's incomprehensible in its scope, and yet at the same time, there, is things that, there are things that we can grasp from this and understand about how God is working. Kidner goes on to say, instead of a frozen perfection, there is the movement of innumerable processes, each with its own character and its season, beautiful in its time, contributing to the overall whole. Just remember that as God works, there's so much He's doing, but you cannot see it every time. We don't ever see completely how He uses us to impact other people's lives. And we have no idea what He is doing in and through our life, and sometimes He just helps us to see, look, I've got greater things going on here. First time I really realized this and it stood out to me and it was good that it did. My younger cousins, Michael and James, they played football and they were both linemen, so they were big boys. And we got into working out together. And it was a way in which I could spend time with my younger cousins. And so we would lift a lot and we would spend a lot of time together. And one day we were sitting in the gym, which was my garage, but we're sitting in the gym and, and I'm listening to him talk. And I, all of a sudden, it just caught me like they are using my exact phrasing. They're saying things exactly like I say them and in the intonation that I would say them. And all of a sudden, it dawned on me, you're having an impact on these guys' lives. Whether you know it or not, they are copying what you do. And all of a sudden, I started to take a hard look at my life and ask myself, where was I leading them? There are people who are watching us, and we don't always know this. There are ways in God is working in and through us into the lives of others, and we don't always know the impact that is being made. But understand, know that God is at work. So if I could title this summation of chapter 3, verses 1 through 22, it is this, time and toil, but not the tyranny of time. Forty times, over 40 times, Solomon is going to use the word God, Elohim, throughout Ecclesiastes, and no other name. He is the transcendent God, as he's going to talk about in chapter 5, verse 2. He is the God who is in heaven. He is the creator of all things. He is the maker of all things. He created man, giving him life, giving him a spirit, making him upright, setting eternity in his heart. And this is what also provides frustration for us. We wrestle with the idea of eternity. Sometimes it shakes us up to the core of our being because we cannot fully grasp what eternity means. We run in time. We live in time. We determine everything by our time. We live by the clock. And so there are going to be times when we find ourselves frustrated in trying to grasp the full divine plan of God, the inscrutable nature of His eternal plan. You cannot frustrate it. It's not controlled by the things that happen in the world. It's what controls what happens in the world. It may not always seem so, but Solomon is realizing this is the truth. We may have trouble figuring things out, but here's a little bit of a piece of advice for all of us. When we can't figure out exactly what God is doing, just submit and take things as they come. Sometimes we want to analyze everything to the minutest detail, and still we can't understand what God is doing. Solomon says, just know that God is at work, trust Him, and take things as they come. If He wants us to understand some things, then He will bring that to us as we walk. So quickly, we're going to walk through chapter 3, and we've covered this, but like I say, I want to sort of button it all up because I think we need to going into chapter 4, because he's going to start with a series of observations that he makes in regards to life, facing reality. What are the things that we face in the world? 
He began for us in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, the divine control, the divine appointment determines the seasons of life that take place. We have to ask ourselves questions when we come to statements like this, like how much of everyday life does God have under his control? Is there anything in this last week that we can look at and say that was not in God's control? Solomon would suggest to us that there is nothing that is outside of his control. He controls everything. And when we think about the things that happen in our life, especially the bad things, right? These are times in which we start to question God. We see that Solomon moves from the positive to the negative and back the negative to the positive. There are good times. There are bad times. There's time for war. There's time for peace. We see all of these things happening around us. And sometimes when we're in the negative... We start to question God, which is really interesting, isn't it? I mean, when we, in the positive times, those good seasons, we have no problem looking to God and rejoicing in God and thinking about His goodness. But when, when the negative times come, right, when things aren't going so great, when the sun isn't shining, it's pouring rain and the wind's whipping by and it's freezing cold, we are in that season of weather in our life, right? And it's hard for us to thank God for His goodness during those times. And sometimes when we look at these moments we come to two conclusions. The first is that God doesn't care. He doesn't care about what's going on in my life. But we know that that's not true. And this is what Satan would want us to do. He'd want us to question the goodness of God. And we saw in Psalm 119 that God is good and He does good. This is who He is. And everything that we consider to be good is measured according to God who is good Himself. So anything that we understand of anything that is truly good, we get that from God. Or other times we look and, and we wonder, and sometimes we even begin to question God's capabilities. Some, when they go through a difficult time, they think, you know what, God really wanted to help, but he just wasn't able to do that. That somehow God was too weak to intervene in this thing in my life. And it might seem rather shocking, but there are believers who, who come to this conclusion, unfortunately, that somehow their God is so small... And somehow he is so weak that he couldn't have done anything about it, although he really wanted to. But that's not what we find in Scripture when it comes to God. So then if he doesn't do anything, then we need to ask him, well, what do you want us to learn from this then? Why are we in this season? What is it that you want me to draw from this? And how is it that you want this to refine my life? Or what is it that you want me to do in the midst of this? Maybe it's to minister to other people as they walk through a similar season. Unfortunately, because oftentimes there have been much bad theology that's come out of difficult times and us wrestling with those difficult times and understanding it's God in control of them. The, the movement of open theism started years ago within the church, but it began with a, a group of men, and one of them, major pusher of this theology, open theism, the reason why he struggled was that his younger brother died in a motorcycle accident. And he couldn't understand why God, being a good God, would let him die so young. Obviously, he should have lived longer. He should have had a full life, and he shouldn't have gone out that way. And so he wrestled with this reality, and his, his view on God then changed in light of that. And so he began to suggest, well, God didn't know that was going to happen, that somehow God is deficient in his understanding of what will come in the future. In other words, the prophecy then, what we find in Scripture, is really God's just best educated guess. But he doesn't really know what's going to happen. But that's not biblical at all. But we sometimes go down these pathways and trying to make sense of things that are happening. But usually what happens is we don't sit and think about us and what we need to learn and understand about ourselves. Mostly we look at God and we start to change our view of God. And we allow our situation to do that. 
So Solomon is going to take us then in verses 9 through 15 of chapter 3 to this divine time frame and divine perspective. It allows for the contentment in the present and light of God's purposes for eternity. I know it's a mouthful, but there's a lot that happens here, right? And he wants us to, he's going to bring us to that point of contentment in verses 12 and following, but he starts off in verses 9 through 11. The connection to eternity can be a frustrating right now, right? We have trouble with this. This is our problem. We are finite beings. We're limited by time and space, and it's hard for us to think about things that are eternal. And even when talking about the plan of God. And so he helps us to understand that man cannot see the end from the beginning. As he says, we are like the desperately nearsighted. Kidner makes a statement, we are like the desperately nearsighted inching our, our way along some great tapestry or fresco with the attempt to take it all in. But we can't do that. We see enough to recognize that some kind of quality is there, but the grand design escapes us. Why? Because we cannot sit back like the creator and the designer of the plan. We can't sit back as far as he does and to be able to see the whole panorama before him. God sees everything, past, present, and future, and the instantaneous now. He sees it that way. We have trouble stepping back far enough just to get a glimpse of. We get little tastes of how amazing it is, but it's hard for us to see the whole. And Solomon understands that. There's going to be frustration in our life. We're going to have a hard time seeing everything that God is doing. Yet at the same time, God desires responsible living. He expects us to live a certain way in light of the seasons that He provides for us. I love the New Testament because there's so many times that there are references to seasons that come. Like in Luke chapter 4, we're reminded that this is the favorable year of the Lord. Or in 1 Timothy chapter 4, we're talking about, or in chapter 2, that we're talking about the season of the gospel. It is this season, its own season, in which we are to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection. There are seasons for everything. The frustrating part for us is that when we try to make God's calendar fit our calendar, when we try to take control rather than let Him control as He ought to. But Solomon recognizes the fact that we have a responsibility to respond in light of these seasons that we are in. There are things that God expects of us. And the first thing we should do when we find ourselves, whether it's a good season or a bad season, is to ask God, how should I face this? What is it that you want me to do? Sometimes it's to come alongside of others who are going through a difficult season. My daughter texted me the other day and asked, Dad, how are you doing? And so I told her, I usually keep everything bottled in, and I do it myself, and I don't let things out. But she asked how I was doing, and I said, all right, Lord, I'm just going to open up to her and share. So I did. And it was hard for her, and it wasn't anything bad. It just, you know, things that you go through in life, but... She appreciated the fact that I was willing to be open and honest with her about what was going on. But then she wrote me an amazing letter the next day and sent it to me. And it was such an encouragement to my soul. But sometimes these seasons aren't just for us, they're for others. And they're meant for us to come alongside and help other people. I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and Paul talks about the God of all comfort, right? And he talks about these experiences which God has comforted him. And then he talks about the fact that now we can take that same comfort that we experience and we can comfort others with that same comfort. Sometimes we go through these difficult times so God can show us how much he loves us and cares for us. And he provides that comfort and that peace so that when someone else is going through a difficult season, we can come alongside of them and we can minister these things to them. Because we're meant to be channels, not conduits or reservoirs. Sometimes we take the things that God gives us and we hold them in and we keep them to ourselves, but they're gifts to be shared with everybody. 
and therefore we must be channels of blessings to others. But he moves us quickly into verses 12 through 13. Part of this positive response and, and proper response to the seasons we're in is that there should be marked uh, contentment and satisfaction in our life. And I put this thought down that dissatisfaction in life is something that we will find near the root of all kinds of sins in our life, right? And it's at the root of our dissatisfaction that there is this never-ending craving that we have for things of this world that they can never satisfy. We just want more and more and more. And we live in a place of consumerism, right? I mean, it's crazy the things that, that we have here. We don't always realize what we have here. Like last night I was reminded at this conference, we were talking about Africa, and I have friends who are missionaries in Mozambique, and it is one of the most impoverished areas. And it was interesting because they came home on furlough from the mission field. And, and, and so he, my friend's wife, she went to the store, the grocery store, to pick up some supplies for, for dinner she was going to make that night. And she went into the store and she had a complete meltdown and she just ran out. And the reason being was because when she walked in the store, she couldn't believe how many choices there were. Like you can have all different types of sauces and ketchups and mayonnaises and all this. And she just, the, the fact that you had any kind of option, but then the plethora of options that were there, she just froze and could not believe this. And it just, she ended up having to go home sobbing in tears. We don't realize how much we have around us, right? But we're constantly being shoveled. You need more. You need this. You need that. When you go up to the, to the counter to cash out of the store, there's all of these things, right? Impulse buys, you got to have this, you got to have that, right? And especially this time of the year as we move towards Christmas, all of these things we need to have and all the financing we can do to get, to get, to get, to get, and we're never satisfied because that's the census. We can never see enough. We can never eat, eat enough, right? So the caution is that we need to seek satisfaction, not in this world, because this is a chasing after wind, but we find it in God. God and God alone is our highest good. And it is in Him that we should find our satisfaction. It is in Him that we can enjoy everything else. So Solomon, as we looked previously in these verses, if I could lay out some things for us, that he exhorts us to do as he lays out these truths in verses 12 through 13. I know that there is nothing better than for them to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. First, we need to cultivate an attitude of rejoicing. Imagine walking into a difficult season with rejoicing in your heart. <laughs> Sometimes it's after the season when we rejoice, when God brought us out to the other side and we're on the positive side of things and we look back and we rejoice and say thank you. But what about in the midst of this, right? As James says, count it all joy, not after the trials, in the trials. But what if we cultivate a rejoicing heart so that when we walk into those seasons, we're already rejoicing, right? It's like the, the Psalms of Ascent, right? And one of the pilgrim psalms talks about going through the valley of Baca and then making it a, a valley of springs, right? All the rejoicing as those who are going up to Jerusalem to worship, as they pass through these dry and arid places, they bring the rejoicing with them as they pass on, as they go towards the worship of God. What if we do this in our life? How about cultivating actions that benefit others? A good way to deal with difficult times in your life? Turn around and use it as a chance to serve other people. Helps us get our, our minds off of ourselves and put them on others. Helps us be less self-centered and more self-sacrificing. Seek to do good. Cultivate appreciation for God supplying your needs. Partake thankfully 
Verse 13, moreover, that every man who eats, drinks, and sees good in his labor, it is the gift of God. Take those things that God has given you and be thankful for them. Even in the negative times, right? The dark seasons, he still provides, does he not? There's always something to thank God for. It's amazing to me that how much thankfulness is, a part of, is supposed to be a part of the believer's life. Even when it comes to false teaching, one of the first things we're exhorted to do is to be thankful. Why? Because if we're thanking God for the truth we already have, we're not looking for something else. Not some new thing. We already have something. Amazing. Right? So cultivate an attitude of thankfulness. And thank God for all those little things that come. I mean, even with the nation of Israel, 40 years in the wilderness, he still provided for them water out of a rock. Their shoes never wore out, right? He still took care of them. There was still something to be thankful for, although they're walking around the circles for 40 years, watching everyone drop dead. But there's always something there, is there not? I have a tendency to look at the negative, <laughs> right? And then you get so focused in on that, that when God does bless you in those moments, you miss it. And you don't see it. And then he doesn't receive the due praise he ought to receive. Because here's the thing that I realized about praise. Our enjoyment that we find in God, that enjoyment to find its total completion should result in praise of God. In other words, it's incomplete then. I mean, think about the things that we, we partake in, something that we delight in, right? What do we do after we delight in it, right? Some great food, sandwich, whatever, right? Philly cheesesteak sandwich. I love that. But if that's something, so then you go sing its praises to everybody else, do we not? But this is what we're supposed to do when it comes to God. If we enjoy Him and delight in Him, then we need to turn around and praise Him. Then our joy is complete. Then it is full. This is why we're constantly exhorted in the Psalms to praise God, to rejoice Him. Not because God's self-centered, because that's the ultimate expression of joy and delight. The last thing is to cultivate an awareness of all God's good gifts and work purposefully. Work purposefully. Verses 14 through 15, control must be yielded to the eternal, unchanging, sovereign God. <coughs> and we're not going to get through everything today. Solomon takes us through these verses, several things that stand out to me. <clears throat> As I look back over them, whatever God does will endure forever. I know that everything God does will remain forever. It is final. Whatever God does, He doesn't need our help in this. He goes on to say nothing can be added to it, nothing can be taken from it. God has made it this way so that man will fear Him. Somehow we act like God needs us, right? It's like, if you ever go to missions conferences and the plea that goes out, right? It's like somehow you, God needs our help. You need to get out there because God can't do this by Himself. God doesn't need you doesn't need me, right? I've seen him bring people to himself in amazing ways without even using a human being in the process sometimes. But understand this, is that God chooses to use us in his divine plan, and that is a great privilege that we have, is it not? That we are earthen vessels in which he works through. In verses 16 through 22, divine justice and divine accountability mitigates the frustration from temporal injustice and apparent purposelessness. I know. Chew on that one. It's a really good thought, though, and Solomon lays it on us. Verse 16 is going to talk about injustice. Furthermore, I have seen that under the sun that there is a place of justice, there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. Parallel lines here, but really, this is a place where you're supposed to go and find justice in the courts. This is where you should find it, but you don't find it there. What you find is wickedness, right? 
This is a thought he's going to carry over into chapter 4 as he talks about the issue of oppression. It's going to be in the context of the court. So he is going to prepare us for what is to come. But it's interesting, some thoughts that come. Sin is universal. If you look at Exodus chapter 7, verse 20, sin is universal. And it is inward, chapter 9, verse 3. It is interesting because chapter 9, verse 3, describing sinful man, that man is full of evil and insanity. <laughs> Read it. It's a pretty powerful statement. God's diagnosis of mankind. We're not as great as we think we are. <laughs> and that's why we need salvation. But it's interesting because then I, I came across 8.11. I was dwelling on this. This is a great thought, right? I'm going to lay this on you. We're going to come and talk about man's sinfulness in chapter 4. Man's inner pull towards sin accelerates if he feels like he and others can get away with sin without immediate punishment. Just think about this. Here it is. Ecclesiastes 8.11 Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. We have cities now where people are being arrested. They're in the front door of the police department and right out the back door. And it is a revolving door, round and round. But if it is not dealt with immediately and quickly, what happens? Sin accelerates. And it becomes worse. Why? Because there's no consequences. This has everything to do with our life now. Chapter 4, we're going to talk about politics at the end. Amazing truths that he lays out here. So sinful man, then how do we manifest the sinfulness? Oppression. Deal with it in chapter 4. Envy. Chapter 4. Greed. Injustice. So he plants the seed here. He's going to pick it up again in chapter 4 for us and carry it into chapter 5, verse 8. There is injustice in the world. So I remember this conversation I had with an elderly Russian gentleman talking about socialism and that. And these are his words. He says, man will always be man. There is no new man. The attempt with socialism was that somehow we're going to formulate a new man. Could put everyone on the same page. So he's described, he says, we tried to create a society that was equal, where there was nothing to envy of your neighbor, but there will always be something to envy because man will always be man. This was his conclusion of walking through those times and coming out the other side. You will always envy a smile. Seems simple, right? So-and-so smiled to them, but they didn't smile to me. Now you're envious, Right? Why? Because we're sinful men. This is what we do. This is what happens to us. This is why God became man, that man might become a new man in him. This is the answer we take to the world. It doesn't matter what system you try to do, you cannot bring about the new man in and of yourself as a human being. It can only be done through God. Human courts, they're set up to correct injustice, but we find that people can be bought off, right? This happens. There are political agendas. We see this happening. And then there are those who just morally are corrupt. You go to the court to find justice, and what you find, Solomon says, is injustice, which I find intriguing. He's the king, right? And so they have all of these judges in the land. As you look back in Chronicles and see that they did this, they followed Moses' example, and they set up all of these leaders and men who were going to be judges over the people to sift all the cases and to make decisions and all of that. As he walked through his kingdom and went around to these different courts and he saw what was happening, this is what he found in his own court system. There is injustice. If this happens under the law of Yahweh then should it surprise us that it happens now? Absolutely not. doesn't mean that we remain passive and that somehow this is okay and we should let it go on. We should face the injustice in the world and deal with it. 
So how do we then struggle knowing that God is in control and yet it seems like the wickedness is in control? First thing is this. Verse 17, he helps us to understand. I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous and the wicked for a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Remember, injustice isn't the end of the story. This is a big picture moment for us, right? It's to remind ourselves there's something greater happening here and this is not the end of it. Justice will ultimately prevail. It has to. Injustice then, therefore, is limited in its scope. We face it. We see it. We must speak out against it. We must do to bring about justice all that we can as God works in and through us. But at the same time, we know that in the end, everything will be made right. Verse 17, injustices are considered in light of a future divine event or period of judgment. Judgment is coming, and the psalmist constantly remind us of this. The judger of all of the earth is going to come. Judgment involves all people, the righteous and the wicked, and it weighs the inner purpose. This is the word in verse 17, so you want to mark this in your margins of your Bible. It's kafetz, and it is the idea of that inner purpose. So God is going to judge you from the inside out. He doesn't merely look at the actions. He also looks at the motives. Why do you do what you do? Sometimes we do things on the surface that look good, but in our heart, we're not so good. Sometimes we do good things for other people because we want them to owe us. <laughs> we want them to pay us back. Isn't that a little bit self-centered then? Not selfless in doing something for their own benefit. We're looking to gain something from it in the end. Therefore, can we truly call it good from the inside out? Verses 18 through 21 then makes another observation. And he says this about the injustice. I said to myself concerning the sons of men that God has surely tested them or proved to them in order for them to see that they are but beasts. If I could render the Hebrew this way, it is to make clear, to prove to them that they may see that they are like animals, they themselves. This is emphatic in the Hebrew at the end of the verse, that they themselves are like animals. In other words, when you pull the restraint off, what do we look like? Not like human beings like we ought to look. Because we are sinful from the inside out, if restraint is removed, we become beast-like in how we treat each other. The more inhuman we become. This is hard for us to digest sometimes. And we might acknowledge that we're sinners, but at the same time, there's something in us that we still sort of think that there's a little bit of goodness in there, that we deserve nothing but happiness and joy in our life. The concept of punishment doesn't factor in usually. But this is how we then can understand the true goodness of God. If we are evil inside and we are insane inside or mad ones inside, if this is who we are, right, and this is our condition before God, and even those who still are walking in rebellion against God, not those who are believers, but those who are in the world walking in rebellion against God, and He still does good for them. How amazing is God's goodness? Then think about us as his people and his goodness to us. So God uses injustices then to show us that without him, human beings are like animals. We often live like beasts and therefore we will die like beasts as he talks about. From dust we've come to dust we will return. It's a sobering thing, and I love that about Scripture. It's blood earnest. It's real. It's honest. It's the Word of God. It tells us the truth. 
It tells us who we really are. And this is how, one of the reasons why I know this is not a human work. This is a divine work because there's no way we would describe ourselves this way. And it's all over the world. This is the condition of man. And this is why we need salvation. Amen? And redemption. Verse 22 then provides the conclusion for us. The remedy of life's enigma is to live in God's goodness. If I can give you the summing thought in this, in chapter 3, is that we need to fear God, live lives of contentment, appreciate all of God's good gifts, trust God as He works out His eternal purposes, even when we don't understand what He's doing. Amen? Dad, would you close?